This morning is found in Romans 8 and uh, verses 18 through verse 23. And this passage of Scripture tells us very clearly that the people of God in this life must go through many trials and many sorrows. At times it can be difficult to understand, my dear friends, as to why the people of God seem to have more tears and afflictions than many people of the world. After all, the Bible makes it clear that people fall into two positions, and you are in one of them this morning. Those who are godly because of a relationship with the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who are godless. The godly have been saved by sovereign grace and have that in their hearts, united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and on a path to glory. They have the Spirit of God and are adopted as children of God. And to be without Christ is to be without hope. And then you have those who are the godless, who live only for this present world. And their minds and hearts are at enmity with God. And so you have this strange difficulty where the people of God seem to suffer more than the wicked in this life. It seems that those who reject God can live as they please and by and large seem to have it easier and get the pleasures they are pursuing, whereas the people of God often find themselves in the valley of tears. Now, Paul refers to this in verse 18, where he speaks of the sufferings of this present time. He then goes on from that and explains that for the Lord's people, we must consider that those sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us as a people of God. Now, all kinds of tribulation and persecution are the portion of God's children here in this life. But even then, Paul says, in spite of all that, we are more than conquerors through Christ. That nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And really, that sets the, the theme, that sets the context for these incredible verses which follow in verse 19 onwards where it speaks about the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, often we, we read those verses, and really we're thinking more about the verses that come later. You know, we think of those great promises, you know, all things work together for good to those who love God. We are more than conquerors in Christ. Wonderful things. But we must not miss the, the marvel of what is being said here. And so these verses, they reveal so much concerning the purposes of God, not only regarding believers, but also the world and the universe in which we live. It tells us that believers are one day going to enjoy the realization of their hope in a stunningly better world, but that the world itself is going to be totally transformed and made a world fitting with that blessed eternal glory. And so we need to ask a number of questions of these verses to help us understand them. And the first thing to ask is this. What does it mean when it says creation is waiting for the revealing, the manifestation of the sons of God? Well, something we need to clarify from the outset. Some translations, they have the word creature instead of creation. And that can be difficult to understand. What is Paul actually talking about here? Well, when you look at it in terms of the verses that follow we know that it's not referring to creatures or creation, 
in terms of those who don't know God, godless men and women. They're certainly not looking forward to the manifestation of the sons of God. Also, it cannot be referring to Satan and his demon hosts because they won't enjoy that inheritance of glory which is referred to here. They're not going to be delivered from the wrath under which they now live. They're in a sinful state and the devil and his angels will continue in that sinful state forever. They are not going to share in the redemption of Christ. And we must also leave out the reckoning that some say about the angels because the holy angels have not been made part of the curse. And so the angels have have not been made partakers of the miseries that believers experience now in this broken world, this sin-sick world in this life. And it's also true that Paul isn't speaking about believers. Verse 19, he says that creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Later on in verse 21, he says, the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So there is a distinction between this creation and believers. And so eliminating all of those other possibilities, Paul is speaking about material creation. He's talking about the the fabric of the universe in which we live. The sun and the moon and the stars, all of those things all around us. And it's so interesting to think on the way that he he speaks of God's creation. He says that creation itself is eagerly waiting, earnestly expecting something to happen. It's such a wonderful picture. The whole creation, the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, they're all craning their necks as it were. They're all watching and waiting for the day when the sons of God will be manifest in all their glory. And the meaning in the original text is of of someone who is craning their neck to see something of intense importance and interest. And so you've got this, this eager anticipation of the very universe around us. You say, well, what is this creation waiting to see? What are they eagerly anticipating? They're revealing the manifestation of the sons of God. You know, the Bible tells us that mankind can be under one of four different conditions. And the Puritans, men like Thomas Boston, they're very helpful in helping us to understand that. And so you have something called the state of innocence. That was the condition in which Adam was created in the beginning. He was made sinless and innocent. He was created without flaw, without fault, without blemish, and in that communion with God. But he fell into sin. And that brings us to the next state that man can be in, the state of sin. Every person as a result of the fall is not conceived and born into a state of innocence, but a state of sin. Every person outside of Jesus Christ is in that condition. And that's you this morning. If you're not a believer, if you've not trusted Jesus Christ for yourself, you are in a state of sin and you are facing the consequences of that for all eternity. But thankfully, there is also something called the state of grace. And when we're brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are brought out of a state of sin and misery into a condition or state of grace. We are saved by grace. We are kept by grace. God in his grace works in our lives. It's a wonderful thing. 
And then the last state is a state of glory. For those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll ultimately be brought into a state of glory. And so you've got these four conditions, innocence, sin, grace, glory, and a progression from one to the other by the grace of God. Adam began in a state of innocence, fell into a state of sin, and so are all who are in Adam. But in Christ, believers are brought into a state of grace, and in the end of history, we will be brought into a state of glory. And that's what verse 19 is talking about. The whole creation round about us, the sun, the moon, the stars, all creation is waiting for the day when the children of God, when believers of all nations are brought from that state of grace into a state of glory. When the end of history comes and the people of God are made as they will be eternally in the full image of the glory of Jesus Christ himself. And so the universe, in that sense, is waiting for that day, is waiting for that that blessed day, that, that liberation. You know, if you're a believer this morning, no doubt there have been times when you have felt lonely in this world. You know, all believers know at one time or another what it is to feel unloved, uncared for, unwanted, a stranger as though, you know, there is none around us who cares, but, but the Word of God reinforces that that is far from the truth. Because not only are there a, a numerable company of angels in heaven above who are looking down upon the people of God, as it were, interested in our spiritual progress, not only are there those innumerable angels above as well as saints who are concerned in the progress of the people of God and in their salvation, But the very universe itself in which we are now living is concerned for the day to come when the children of God shall be manifested and revealed in their glorified state. It is a a staggering thought that you are part of these incredible purposes of God if you're a believer. You know, many of the verses in this section begin with the word for or because, and that's because Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit, is explaining these arguments about the privilege and the security of the believer, the certain future. And so the creation waits for this event. And then he adds something else in verse 20. Look, if you will, at the text. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so Paul explains that the created universe in which we live is subjected to futility. It's ruined by the fall. It's under the curse. You know, there is nowhere in this universe that does not have something of the curse of God upon it, whether it be the land or the sea or whatever, every aspect. And that's true in our lives as well. Sin has flooded into this world. It has impacted everything. And the curse of God has entered into everything because of that fall, that sinful rebellion against God. The universe was made to be a place where man would live to glorify God. But man disobeyed God from the beginning, and so the Lord has subjected everything to vanity. You think of Ecclesiastes 12.8, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. 
But if you look at verse 20, there's another very important point. We are told that this subjection was not willingly. You say, what does that mean? Well, it means that the world in which we live did not have any pleasure in becoming cursed for the sin of man. God brought to bear this curse, even though the creation, as it were, didn't desire that. You know, you look around at this world, and there are elements now to the world which are brutal. There are hostile places in this world, dangerous, uninhabitable by people. But they have no pleasure in being a place of judgment and a place of curse for man. Everything is not as it should be. Nothing is perfect as it was in the beginning. Sin has ruined. And that's the, the consequence of the judgment brought to bear because of the fall. And the imagery that Paul uses here is that the creation grieves over the sinful consequence that it doesn't willingly bring rage and destruction and trouble to people. It is, however, a necessary consequence of the rebellion of people against God and the ruin of sin, the curse of God. And so the creation groans under that. It grieves at the condition in which it and us are in. But then, verse 20, it ends with the word hope. Subjected in hope. The universe itself in which we live has hope. It is a glorious message to be able to proclaim. And this hope is that it, the very world itself in the end of history is going to be changed. It's going to be regenerated. It's going to be given a new birth, as it were. The word regeneration means new birth. Now, of course, the, the Christian receives his new birth at the beginning of his spiritual experience. The new birth or the regeneration of the soul is what makes us a Christian. Without that intervention of God and that, that transformation, without the new birth, we cannot see the kingdom of God. We, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. You know, until we're born again, we are not true believers. But Paul says the universe is going to receive its own regeneration. It's going to be restored to its primitive glory, its original beauty. But more than that, it's going to be brought to a condition never known before. You know, the universe has been subjected in this hope. And the Word of God makes it clear that there is going to be, in the end, a new universe, a better universe than ever there was before. It's going to be utterly glorious. Now you say, well... Why is this important for us day by day? Why do we need to know these things? Well, the Bible tells us these things to prepare us for the day when God will bring this change upon the, the sun and the moon and the stars. You know, when Jesus comes back, the Bible says that it will be like lightning, as it were, from one end of heaven to the other. His appearance will be with the sound of the trumpet, with great noise, and with fervent heat and the elements will melt, there will be an end of this present world as we know it. But God, according to his promise, says that he will bring, 2 Peter 3.13, new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so it is for this reason that the present universe is groaning because it is looking also for that deliverance from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. 
And so in this present age, nothing is perfect. We see brokenness and sadness and sorrow. It's everywhere. And verse 22 says, The whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. You know, one preacher puts it so beautifully. He says, If you and I had ears to hear, we would hear the music of the universe as a sad symphony of sighs. Everything in this world is sighing. And you know, people who are seeking to spend all their time in in laughter and pleasure, the Bible says they're fools. They're only trying to run and escape from the nature of the present world in which we live. As one says, we live in a world of death, of sickness, of bereavement, of tragedy, of sorrow. The hearts of men are bleeding everywhere throughout the world. And through war and loss and breakdown of relationships, tragedy is written across our world. The universe in which we live is aware of this. And so when people are brought to know the Savior, when they're given spiritual discernment and wisdom, they are aware of the fact that this world is not a place of endless pleasure, but of sadness and sin where God is rejected and God is neglected and the truth, the main things of life, they are set aside. And Paul says that the present universe groans and travails in pain. Now, two ways in which a person might groan. One is what we call death pangs. When somebody groans because they're dying, they're coming to the end of life, and they're facing eternity, and sadly many are unprepared for that. But there's also something called birth pangs. And a woman groans because she's in in labor. She's uh, seeking to bring forth her child. And that's the the figure of speech that we find in this verse. The creation is groaning, travailing like a lady in labor, giving birth. And this groaning world in which we live is not groaning because it's about to die. It's groaning because it's about to give birth to a new creation, to another world far better than the present one. And God is going to purify the present universe and make it a fit habitation for the children of God. And in the purposes of God, the Bible tells us that the new heavens and the new earth are going to appear in that great and final regeneration. And they explain that the new heavens and the new earth are going to be one place, as it were. You know, imagine one commentator describes the present world in which we live like a a three-story house. And so you have heaven above, you have hell below, and then you have earth in the middle. And we live on earth until we die, and then we're either destined for heaven or for hell. That's why the gospel is so vital. It is given to us now to prepare for death and eternity. And it tells each and every one of us that we're sinners, that we need Christ as our Savior to deal with our sin, to reconcile us to God. And the only way we can be right with God is through Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection. It is only in Christ that we have hope. Only in Christ that we are delivered from sin and death and hell. And that current state of the universe will be in place until the end of time. Then at the end, God will take the earth and the heavens and he will beautify and glorify them and make them one place, as it were. New heavens and a new earth. 
one glorious habitation, you know, the only other place to exist will be hell. Eternal for the wicked where they'll be sighing and groaning forever and ever. And all those who have no saviour, all those who have no love for Christ will be eternally and tragically lost. My dear friend, I hope that is not you. But the renewed universe, the new heavens, the new earth, a fixed habitation for the people of God. They'll have no need of the sun by day or the moon by night. God himself will give the light they need. Christ himself will be the lamp they need. And they'll walk in the light of the Lord their God forever and ever. It's a staggering thought. We cannot really comprehend it. It's beyond our, our finite mind. But the creation that now groans and travails in pain is about to give birth to a new heavens, to a new earth, and that soundtrack of sadness will pass away and a new song will be in place. And in this present life, we are sad because of sin and because of evil and because God is dishonored and his cause is not love. But when Christ returns, the universe is going to be beautified. And all that sad music will stop. There'll be no more sighing, no more sadness, no more tears. There'll be nothing but gladness and rejoicing forever. The new song of Moses and of the Lamb, the song of the redeemed, who come to faith and to glory, those who are the people of God. The creation longs for that. It eagerly waits for that. And then in verse 23, we also see there is a longing in the Lord's people. This longing, this groaning, this travailing is not just true of creation, but also of the people of God now. See what he says. We also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Now, we ourselves is speaking there of true believers. Those are in that state of grace. We groan within ourselves. Do you know, if believers, if that is what we are this morning, if we know our own hearts, which we, I'm sure, must, we groan because of our own imperfections. We know how far short we come of where we ought to be. How many times do we grieve our own consciences and sin against the God whom we love? How many times we, we wound our own consciences and we grieve the Holy Spirit and yet we have this certainty that in the grace of God we are to be saved and we are to be brought in a state in which we shall have the adoption waiting for the redemption of our body. Now, if you look through the Scriptures, you'll know that the word adoption is used more than one way. And usually the word adoption refers to a person being brought out of the state of sin and into a state of grace, where God adopts us and makes us his children. And we become legally adopted, spiritually adopted into the family of God. As many as receive Christ, such have the right to become the sons of God. But in verse 23, it is more than that. We're speaking of something beyond that. Our very bodies will be taken out of the grave and brought into glory. Our very bodies, these bodies in which we have lived on earth, are going to enjoy a condition in which they will shine beautifully and gloriously like the very body of Christ when he ascended up on high. Our bodies will be redeemed from sickness and death 
and corruption and all the things that give them trouble and difficulty here. We will be delivered from all of that. And our bodies are to come forth from the grave when the trumpet sounds and they are to appear as they will always finally be in the brightness and beauty which is the very image of God. Filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with holiness, filled with love, filled with comfort. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There'll be no more pain. And the universe knows that this will happen. And it longs for it to happen. The people of God should know this is going to happen. And we should long for it. Eagerly wait for it. But you know, we have to be patient. And often we are impatient. You know, if you're a young Christian... Maybe you've only been waiting a few months or a few years. Some of us for many more years than that. Waiting for the Lord either to come or to take us home. But then think of the universe. Waiting, looking, groaning for thousands of years. And the world has been groaning and longing for the day to come when the people of God will appear in all their beauty, in all their resurrection splendor. It is incredible. What a wonderful thing to be a Christian. To have been taken from darkness to light. From a state of sin to a state of grace. With the prospect of being in a state of glory forever. As we close, why does the word of God tell us these things? It's not just theology. It's not just some academic exercise to increase our knowledge of the future. Of course, it is a, a wonderful revelation concerning those things, and you won't find it anywhere else apart from the Word of God. But these things are here for us for a very practical reason and to teach us a very important lesson if we are the Lord's people this morning. And it's simply this. We must keep going as believers in this life. And though trials come, and though we may endure all manner of disappointments, loneliness in this present time, we mustn't lose heart because a better day is coming. And there is hope even in these dark times. This is not the end. This isn't it. In Christ, there is so much more yet to come. And remembering this helps us to keep all of our adversities and our, our trials and our troubles in this present time to keep them in perspective. Because we are in a time when we will shed many tears, but the universe has been groaning and grieving for far longer, waiting for the day to come when our blessed Savior shall appear upon the clouds of heaven and all the eyes of men shall see him. And when he shall shout and all the, the dead shall come forth from their graves out of every nation and kindred and tribe and we shall all speak the same language and we'll all love the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind and strength at the glorious return of Christ. We keep going because a better day is coming. One preacher uses this illustration. There was a young woman who was a very poor servant to a very rich family. And they treated her so very badly. She was despised. She was taken advantage of. She had nothing. She was forced to sleep in a 
very little room with very little comfort. And this family had no concern for her. They spoke unkindly of her. She was shut out from anything good that the rich family seemed to enjoy. But one day she was about her work and somehow she met a prince. And he loved her. And he promised that he would marry her and take her away from that awful place. And he gave her his word that it would be a few months and he would come for her. And he would take her as his wife and to his palace where she would be far richer and happier than ever her current masters knew. And the young woman who was a servant, she no longer worried about all that she faced because she was able to look beyond her awful situation that she endured because she knew a better time was coming. And she often thought of her future husband. She often looked longingly for his appearing. She often thought of the day of her wedding. And it helped her to keep going. And the day came. And she was brought out. And she was with her prince forever. As believers, we know that our Savior who loves us has promised us that we will be with him and that he will come back. And we can face the sorrows of today for the bright future of tomorrow. And when Jesus returns, there will be new heavens for you, dear believer. There will be your home. You will inherit the earth. You will inherit heaven. You will inherit all that God has promised to his people. There is not a promise in God's word that he will not make good to you there. And he will do you more good than you can even ask or imagine or think. He will press down all the blessings of glory upon you. And my dear believer, you will be richer than the richest kings and queens have ever been in this present world. Be of good heart and be thankful that this certain hope you have been given is all of grace, saved by grace, saved from despair to hope. We might not see it tomorrow, but we will see it in God's time. The sun knows it and is waiting. The moon knows it and is waiting. The earth upon which we tread is waiting because the earth also and the heavens, they're going to be transformed in the same day that you and I are transformed into that glorious condition of being adopted as the sons of God in our very bodies in the glory to come. That is what is ahead for the believer. And my last words this morning are to those who don't believe in Christ, who are outside the kingdom. As much as the believer has this this wonderful hope for the future, if you don't have Christ, you've got no hope. You'll not be part of this stunning glory. You'll face an eternity of horror and sighing and sorrow and pain and devastation. But that is why God in his mercy has given you the opportunity, even this morning, to hear these things so that you'll wake up and that you'll repent and you'll seek the Lord and you'll believe in Christ to shed his blood for sinners upon the cross. And all who by the grace of God believe in Jesus Christ, they will be saved and they will have this certain hope of future glory. And if you have him, you too will be an heir and a fellow heir with Christ of that glorious hope. And I pray that it will be so. We eagerly wait. A better day is coming. Take heart, dear friends. 
Our Jesus is coming again. The creation longs for it. We long for it. And we long for that wonderful glory. Amen.